0: a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him in their neighbor for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. For the last couple of weeks, we've been having conversations about reimagining a post-quarantine church. When we get out of this and we're we're through with all the restrictions and things return as much as possible to normal, what will the church look like? Specifically, what will the church in America look like? Although this could be said of the whole world, but there is something very per- peculiar and particular about American Catholicism and the way that it operates and in the kinds of parish ministry that we see go on. And so one of the questions is, what is it going to look like when we get out of this? Um, Before the quarantine, I worked in a parish, and um, one of the things that that we relied on each week was not only the large gathering as we got together for Mass, but we also did a a very particular um, dinner each week. Uh, We did dinner, we did uh, faith formation for adults and kids, and everybody was kind of all on campus at the same time. And I don't foresee that returning, um, at least not quickly. Because even after the restrictions are lifted, I think that people are going to be a little bit more hesitant. Uh, Many people, not necessarily everyone, but many people are going to be more hesitant to be in large groups for a while. And so what does the parish look like coming out of that? What does evangelization look like um, in this new social reality and this new framework of uh, of personal interaction. And so these are questions that I personally am interested in and and I know that there are others who are. So we're trying to explore some different uh, ideas around this question of what does a post-quarantine church look like? How do we reimagine that? And to illustrate that question just a little bit more, and maybe provide some context for the question, um, I'm going to do a reading out of the book of 1 Kings. Now, normally we save the readings for the very end, and the reason that I'm doing this one here is because there were two really good readings, and I didn't, wanna, I didn't know which one I wanted to do. So we're going to get this one out of the way now. We're going to use this as a framework and a context for what we talk about in our conversation today. And then at the end, we're going to look at another scripture out of the Gospels, and, uh, and specifically at how that relates to the conversation and uh, to answer our question for today, reimagining this post-quarantine church. So this reading is probably going to be familiar to you. This is when um, we have Elijah, and he has been on the run. Uh, he He's kind of persona non grata in his government, and he's kind of depressed. And so God's, God picks him up in a very interesting way. God had a really interesting relationship with Elijah in the book of First Kings. Uh, he, he picks him up. He makes him basically fast for 40 days and kind of drives him across, leads him, leads him across the desert um, to come and have this meeting with God. And so here we have, he's been in this cave. Uh, and here we have this reading of the meeting that Elijah has with God At the mountain of God, Horeb, Elijah came to a cave where he took shelter. Then the Lord said to him, Go outside and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord will be passing by. A strong and heavy wind was rending the mountains and crushed the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a tiny whispering sound. When he heard this, Elijah hid his face in his cloak and went and stood at the entrance of the cave. That reading comes from the the book of 1 Kings. And this, I think, is so important for us. A couple of things are happening here. One, Elijah is in a very particular state of mind and is a little, um, he he feels abandoned and isolated. And God is coming to him and telling him, you were not abandoned and isolated, but rather than just telling him that, he is going to manifest it. He is going to, to prove it that he has not isolated. He has not abandoned Elijah. So he brings them He brings them on this long journey. He provides for him um, the sustenance he needs to make the journey in kind of this mystical way. And then here at the cave, Elijah goes into the cave because it's hard and you need shelter. So he goes in and he takes shelter. And what does God do? But God calls him out of that safety to the edge of the mountain, right? Out of the safety and to the place of risk, to not only risk because of the cliff, uh, but also because of the exposure, right? Right? No shelter, no cave, just whatever the elements bring, um, you are exposed to it. And so God calls him out to that 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 vulnerable place. And there in his vulnerability, he experiences a great wind, uh, something so great, so strong that it crushes rocks. And so here he is in this vulnerable state called out of his safe place, already feeling a little bit tiny, and here is this massive, amazing feat. But God's not there. And then there's the earthquake and the fire, and God is not in those. And here's the thing. Even today, on your insurance policy, these are the kinds of things that are labeled acts of God, right? These are the kinds of things that we recognize and have carried all the way down into modern society, are things beyond our control, and therefore we attribute them to God. And so God is reorienting Elijah's mind, showing him that he has not been abandoned, by saying, you've been looking for me in the wrong places. Look here instead. And he comes to him in utter stillness, Lots of different ways this word is translated. Uh, You hear the still small voice or the quiet whispering sound or just the stillness. Here is where God wants to show us that he is. And how often are we like Elijah in this way, where we have our set expectation of not only how God acts, how God is found, Um, what kinds of ways we are to operate so that we can be uh, connected to God, right? We have these expectations, and perhaps through quarantine, God is wanting to reorient us. Not to say that he caused this, but rather, because God uses all things, God is giving us the opportunity to be on the edge of the mountain, on the precipice, in the vulnerable place, And he's showing us the ways that you have been looking for me are not necessarily the ways that I can most easily be found. And so we have to come to a place where we can wait and discern and look and listen and find out where God actually is rather than making assumptions and running headlong into it. This is our opportunity to reimagine parish life after quarantine, because what is parish life other than the sacramental life of the church that lives in mystical union with God? And all of that is very dependent upon the with God part of that equation. And so, for us to be able to live parish well, to be the church well, we have to first and continually be in that connected relationship with God. And it can be a little overwhelming because um, as we are trying to discern where God is, we also have to really discern our own preconceptions, right? Is God in the places that we thought he was? Are these things that we consider great and amazing truly a work of God? Um, Are the things that we have held on to dearly uh, really, where God is and how we meet with God. This whole experience for Elijah was a, a refining one because this is God's prophet, the person God speaks to on a regular basis. He had a way of interacting with God that he knew and he was familiar with. He had expectations for how God was going to behave toward him, and here, after this period in his life, he had felt abandoned, and here. God is reminding him and showing him you've not been abandoned. And I know a lot of people right now who feel that abandonment. Uh, this is, I think, one one of the primary ways people leave the church. Uh, the way that I have seen that people leave the church is they have an expectation of who God is and God doesn't do the thing that they expect. He doesn't behave in the way that they think God behaves. And so it calls into question their whole understanding and experience of God. And so rather than say, perhaps my uh, my definition of God is off, they say, God is not who who he said he was. God is not who I thought he was. Therefore, God must not really exist. Uh, or, or he's not worthy of anything of any kind of worship because he didn't live up to the part of the bargain, even though I'm the one who kind of created the framework for the bargain. And so this is really important stuff for us to get right. Uh, Even especially as we teach our children, as we teach those who are coming into the faith through RCIA, for them to have an accurate picture of who God is and who God wants to be toward them and who God is in relationship To the whole church. And so it takes this frightening moment of discernment where we step back from everything that we know and we allow God to speak in his own voice rather than the one that we have expected and imposed upon him. Now, this could be rather intimidating, but with today's guest, we're going to look at some really easy ways um, that, well, easy in principle, some really easy ways that we can begin to discern where God is and to find that still small voice. We're talking today with Kevin Cotter, who's the executive director of Amazing Parish. Uh, it, it's a wonderful program that helps parishes with uh, with their cohesive team, their leadership team of uh, of staff and pastor come together to create uh, a more welcoming, inviting, community oriented parish. And so with that expertise, Kevin, in working with parishes to help them reach their communities, I'm especially interested, as we're coming to the end of, hopefully, the end of this quarantine, it doesn't look as though the world is going to immediately return to normal. Even if all the restrictions are lifted, the question as to when people are going to feel comfortable coming back into large groups is still kind of in question. And so what I've been asking lately is, as we return— What are we returning to and what should we return to the way things used to be? Or is there a new place and a new paradigm that we ought to be striving uh, to reach as the church to be able to reach our communities?
1: Yeah, I think first off, you know, T.L., thanks for just having me on the show. Great to be with you here today. And I think um, so many thoughts and questions and challenges with with COVID right now. And I think you're totally right about like, How do we strip the parish back to what it's supposed to be and its purpose? And I think, on one hand, people activity wise are thinking, who's going to come back? What are we going to do? But I think more so, we can think about who are we going to be when we come out of this coronavirus? And for us at Amazing Parish, that's really what we focus on. I'd say if if he said, What's Amazing Parish all about? It's all about changing the culture of a parish so that it can bring people to Jesus. Changing the culture of a parish so that we can bring people to Jesus. Because right now, just to be honest, in most of our parishes, there's not the culture there that's going to allow people to come to Jesus. And when we add programs or activities or even uh, great liturgies or great um, you know, hospitality to that, if our culture isn't different, then all those activities aren't really going to get to the difference that we need to bring people to Jesus. So it's been a really beautiful time for um, a lot of parishes, honestly, as most people look at parishes and they're shut down, but honestly, this is what many parishes need to do right now. They need to stop doing activity mm-hmm. and not just change the what, but actually you change who they are. And so it's in this period of time where they have that time to actually say, who are we and who are we becoming and what's needed out of us as a as a pastor and as a staff to change the culture that we have.
0: Well, and let's kind of define... What our parish cultures have largely been in the United States, um, very often, and people have bandied about this term, moving from maintenance to mission uh, and being a, a church of missionary disciples. Very often, we've been kind of the the recipients of ministry, the consumers of ministry, rather than the producers of ministry. Uh, as a as a parishioner sitting in the pew, we often you'll hear the term "I go to church." to be fed I, to be fed by the Eucharist, to be fed by, um, uh, by the homily, by the community. and you know there's lots of research in terms of the, the 80/20 rule, right? 80, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. Um, very often we don't see the parish as the place where we go to participate uh, in the sacramental life and the, the ministry, of the church, and so part of that culture that we have to change is to say, okay, as I'm going here, I'm not just going to do uh, to sit in the pew and have communion, receive communion, and then leave, and then do it again next week. There's an equipping, but also a releasing into ministry that has, that should be taking place as we go there. And what that looks like may be different from person to person, but the fact that we're all called to be active in our discipleship does not really vary from person to person.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, Just the paradigm shift, I think even with Vatican II, of the lady really taking that on and living out that mission of the church really hasn't happened. Even though it's been 50 years, even though we've written lots of books and articles and all these different things, we really haven't changed who we are. Um, Many times this institution that's relying on the clergy to drive, actually just to to do all of that mission, you know, Mm -hmm. And the mission is sacramental rather than the the mission being evangelical and really evangelizing your community and allowing the parish mission to to thrive and do that. So if you want that change to happen, if you want the lady to act differently, you really have to get into that culture change. You have to say, we are someone who's different and you have to lead with vision and and really a a true purpose for why your parish is going to be completely different in order to get those people in the pews to not just say, I'm here to receive communion, but I'm here to be a part of this parish and its mission. And um, that's that's what I think it's all about.
0: So here we are. We're largely at home. Some some of our parishes have opened back up to some extent and we're able to go. My parish does outdoor masses. We've been really lucky and blessed and, and provided for with good weather so that we can do that. Um, some people are going to mass with reduced capacity. How does a, a staff or pastors or lay leaders in a parish begin to identify the areas of weakness, begin to identify the things that have not been done well in a way that's constructive and not just griping? And then how do they, from there, what are some early steps that anyone can take to help beginning uh, begin to affect that culture change that you're talking about, to move more into engaging in the mission of the worldwide church?
1: Yeah, I think um, Amazing Parish, we like to keep things really simple. And so I'll say simple things and people say, well, that that sounds really uh, straightforward and not hard. Uh, And it's it's simple to comprehend, but often uh, difficult to do. And so if I'm a a pastor, if I'm a, a parish staff, or even someone who's on maybe a parish council, what I want to see out in the parish, right, if I have a heart that we're evangelizing, if I have a heart that we're sharing our faith, if I have a heart that we're all living out this mission, before I start to create programs or activities for that, the first question I'd ask is a very simple one. It's just, do we do that here on the level of leadership? Hmm. Right? The things we want our parishioners to do, Father, as a pastor, do you do those things? Staff, as, as a staff who's at this parish, who are leaders here, Do you do those things? Parish council, the things that we want to actually do in the parish, do do you do those on a a weekly or daily or monthly basis? And if not, then what we do, and this is what we often do in the church, is we want programs or we want things to happen that we aren't actually willing to do ourselves. And that's what we find a lot of times with parishes in our work is we have all the dreams in the world, all these ideas. We've never talked about I think evangelization is so much in parish life in the Catholic world, which I'm thrilled about. But when it comes to actual doing of the thing, right? Actual living out the life, we're very easy to create a program that will do it for us. Instead of realizing it's often with our own power and our own capacity, our own witness and our own model to start a movement of people that lives this way, rather than a program trying to uh, almost conjure it for us. And so, um, this is why COVID has been so great is these, these pastors and these teams can actually take a break from all the things that they do, all the programs that they enact and say, who, who are we? What are the cultures that we have? And an Amazing Parish, we've really identified three different cultures in a parish. And if you have these three cultures, you're going to thrive. And if you don't have these three cultures, you're not. And so we, we really invite pastors and their teams to start on these three cultures. And they're really simple. The first one is prayer do we pray as a staff? Is it normal for us to just rely on God? Is it, is it normal when we get into a challenging or difficult situation that we just say, can we just stop and pray? And not just like an Our Father or Hail Mary, those are great prayers, but to just spontaneous from our heart say, Lord, we don't know the answer. Can you help us? Mm-hmm. Lord, COVID is so awful and it's so many different losses for us and for our parish. And for the people we know, can you just bless this somehow? Like those types of prayer, do we have that culture that it's normal in our parishes to just stop and pray to our Lord and to act like he is real and can change our parish?
0: We're talking today with Kevin Connor, the executive director of Amazing Parish. You can find him more at amazingparish.org. Kevin, I have a story about this from my parish days. I was the director of evangelization at a parish, and the the director of youth ministry was uh, coming in my office and was uh, saying, "You know what? You know what I need because she had she was in the school and she was doing uh, youth ministry work, and you know, youth ministers they they are always." Part time, but they're always doing sixty hours worth of work in that part time. Um, and so this was the case. She said, you know what? I just need someone to come into this office, walk into my office, and say, "Hi, I want to volunteer and take over the middle school." And uh, and I, we both kind of laughed. as, yeah, that's going to happen. I said, well, you know, why don't you go spend some time with Jesus? And so she went over to the Adoration Chapel and spent about uh, forty minutes over in the Adoration Chapel. And while she was there. Someone walked into the building and said, "Hi, I'm. uh, You know, I'm back home. I've just finished up school, and I want to help in youth ministry, maybe in middle school. Can you use a volunteer?" And it's that whole thing of we we're very specific with our complaints, but we're not very often very specific with our prayers.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and do we do we act like God can change things? Like, and it sounds so silly. It's like, well. They work in a Catholic church, right? Like they're a priest, <laughs> they're celibate, right? Like they, they're a parish staff and they take less money, right? Like, of course they believe in Jesus, like of course they pray, and it's just not true, not not the prayer that we're talking about, um, and, and not that openness with our relationship with God. But if if we want our parishioners to have this great relationship with God and be missionary disciples and to share their faith, but then we're not willing to pray with each other, we're not will, willing to like have that relationship out loud with one another, like our, our parishioners and whatever program we're kind of trying to do is going to instantly go, that's just not who we are. Yeah. Like whatever this program thing, that's just foreign to the people here and what, what they do. So that's, that's the first culture we really challenge people on. The second one is, is teamwork. Do you have a culture of teamwork at your parish? Um, do you, do you really feel like you, you work together and rely on each other and can collaborate and are there to support each other? Uh, most parishes, um, they're, they're financially strapped. They don't have a lot of staff and they begin to compartmentalize and departmentalize and silo things off. You're in charge of finances. You're in charge of youth ministry. You're in charge of RCA. And we just have these people here and they need sacraments and that's what you need to do and just go do your job. And hopefully there's no problems today. You know, hopefully there's, there's just, I don't hear from parents. Could you just take that for me? Um, Versus a team that says, what's our goal and how can we all work together? So if there's a big youth ministry event, we're not just thinking, oh, that's the youth minister's problem. We're like, no, we've we've set out in this parish that the youth are some of the most important people to us. And we want to make sure they have Jesus. So if this event's going on, we're asking that youth minister, what can we do to help? Mm-hmm. Like, can, can I make an announcement? Or or I when I'm at RCA, can I think through what youth might need to come, whatever it is, like we're as a team functioning together and supporting each other rather than different silos that are acting on their own. And when you do that, you start to get really clear on what you need to do as a parish. And then you actually put your full force behind it rather than just a little effort and a lot of little places. And then we get to the end of the year and wonder, why is nothing different in our parish? Mm -hmm. Well, we've been all working on our own.
0: You know, I, I look at this, uh, and, and this happens in family. This happens uh, in in business. It happens in the church. Uh, and and when we're so focused on our individual tasks, um, one, we begin to lose sight of of the overall mission. What is the thing that's really and truly important? And we begin to do the task for the sake of doing the task, and we do it because it's the way we've always done it. When when I begin to listen, whether it be to my wife or to my kids or to someone who's on staff with me, and I begin to listen to uh, their needs, it pull, one, it pulls me out of kind of that that tunnel vision of the one thing that I have to let me see the the beauty of the breadth of what God is calling us to. But the other thing that it does is it it focus, focuses us on the fact that we're all interconnected, that we, as the body of Christ, are moving towards that singular goal, not of the task that I have to get done, although that's a part of it, but to the broader thing of, hey, we. here's a funny thing. We belong to one another. We have responsibility for one another, to care for one another, um, not just uh, for for that person over there, but for my family, for you, this person who I work with, for you, this person who is walking through the doors of the church for the very first time and looking a little bit confused and uncertain whether you should be here. I don't say, oh, that's not my job. I recognize, hey, you're coming in here. You're a part now of our community and let me welcome you in uh, because all, all of it, the whole mission of the church belongs to all of us. We're talking today with Kevin Cotter, the Executive Director at Amazing Parish. Find out more about the work they do at amazingparish.org. And come join the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Come talk to me about what do you perceive are the things that are important for us as we return to a post-quarantine church Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today about reimagining... The post-quarantine church, we've been kind of sequestered away for months and months. This all started back in March, and here we are uh, in August, still in the thick of it. Um, What does it look like when we come out of this? How do we be the church? How can we be the body of Christ when the way that we've done things is not really open to us? We're not able to meet in uh, in in the same way that we were, even after all the restrictions are lifted, People are going to be a little bit more reticent to go to large events. What does it look like? So we're talking today with Kevin Cotter, the executive director of, at Amazing Parish. You can find out more about them at amazingparish.com. Uh, we've, we're going through, Kevin, the three cultures that, that you have seen through your work that make a parish thrive and succeed. The first one is that all the way to the very top, there ought to be a culture of prayer. The second you mentioned is that there has to be a culture of, of collaboration and teamwork and that that we don't just silo off both on the the pastor, the staff, and down to the volunteers. This is your job. This is your job. And focus on that, delegate it away so I don't even have to look at it, but rather this the spirit of collaboration. And uh, we got cut off by the break. You're, we're going to go right into now, what is that third culture that you have seen is essential to the success of a parish?
1: Yeah, the third one is a culture of discipleship. So it's similar to that prayer culture, but a little bit different dimension. It's just the fact, do we share our faith with one another, right? So we have this great call to go out and evangelize. But if we can't share it with one another, the people that we work with, the people that are fellow Catholics, the people that are fellow staff members uh, or maybe council members, then why are we sitting around talking about how we're going to share our faith with people who are outside the church, people who um, are distant, maybe who, people who have fallen away, people who have never even heard of the church's teachings. um, Let's start with first things first. And um, really all these cultures are based off of one principle, and it's it's a principle by Stephen Covey. It's called circle of influence and circle of concern. Circle of influence and circle of concern. So Covey basically says circle of concern, right? There's lots of things that we're all concerned about in the world in general, right? We're we're concerned about world poverty. We're concerned about what's going on at the Vatican. We're concerned uh, about the next election that's coming up, right? All these things that we're concerned about, but for most of us, we don't have a great influence over them, right? I can't really change what's going on in the Vatican. Um, I can do my part for world poverty, but on a global scale, there's not much I can do. But that's where it gets to our circle of influence. All of us, every single one of us has a circle of influence where we can really change what's going on. So we think of the people we work with, the people in our families, the people in our neighborhoods, the people that um, you know we have friendships with. We have influence over these people. We can actually really change who they are and what they're doing. And so, um, again, we often in the church focus on the things out there and things far away. But when we just focus on ourselves, our circle of influence, that's when we really see things grow. Mm-hmm. So as I was talking about before, when we want our parishes to change, we both, before we start looking outside, we have to say, as a staff and as a pastor, do I embrace these three cultures? And do I live them out? Because if I do, we'll start to see that circle of influence really grow. So
0: this is a really, I think, important distinction. um, Because back when we were talking about prayer, we talked about how we're very specific with our complaints, but not often very specific with our prayers. I think here, too, with our our areas of concern, um, our culture in the West, not just in the church, has trained us to be very vocal about our, our circle of concern. Um, our social media, the way that we have uh, conversations uh, over, over a meal, all of this, we have learned and been trained that our opinion about the things in our circle of concern are those things that we must express and, and how divisive that can be when we can't really affect change on those levels and how much more productive and fruitful we would be as individuals if we would take the time to step back from those things over which we have little to no control and begin to focus on the things, what is it that I can change? How would our relationships, interpersonal relationships change if we focused more on our circle of, our circle of influence than our circle of concern? Um, the next thing that I wanna point at and, and maybe have you draw a distinction between, very often when we talk about discipleship, the, um, the the immediate picture that comes to our mind is of catechesis or of some kind of academic intellectual pursuit that I'm going to go and I'm going to take this class and I'm going to learn more about my faith. And in that process, I am becoming a disciple. Can you draw the distinction between the way that you are using that word of the culture of discipleship and the common parlance, which would be more of this class or this program or this thing that I do to intellectually grow in my faith?
1: Yeah, there's definitely no problem with intellectual life, but I'd say discipleship at its core is a way of life, right? So a uh, disciple, if you want to go back to the root of the word, right? So in ancient Israel, you'd have rabbis. Those were teachers of the law, teachers of scripture, um, and they would have pupils, right? From very early age, you would learn the Torah, you'd learn Hebrew scripture, and you actually memorize it. And you'd grow in different schools as you get older. That was their elementary school. That was their their high school. If you were really good at memorizing and understanding the Torah, understanding scripture, then you'd keep moving on to the the next level. Eventually, if you were the best of the best, you would follow a rabbi around and you wouldn't just go to the rabbi's classes. It wasn't an intellectual pursuit. You would literally live with the rabbi. He would say these these words in Hebrews, lek hakarai, come and follow me. This is what Jesus does, right? That's why in the Gospels we hear Jesus called being called a rabbi. That's why they're his disciples. They're actually following him around. This wasn't a thing uh, isolated to Jesus. This is how the rabbinic and discipleship culture worked: is actually to follow that rabbi around and actually learn how does a rabbi do things? It was just as important to understand the intellectual knowledge as it was to understand how does my rabbi talk to people when they approach him? How does my rabbi talk to someone who's not Jewish? How does my rabbi sleep at night? What prayers does he say before he goes to bed, right? It it wasn't just intellectually, it was behaviorally. How does my rabbi live? And so if Jesus is calling us to be his disciples, um, then intellectual life is, is important. But ultimately it comes down to how am I living a life following after Jesus and what's normal for really that life and what I listen to, what I watch, how I speak, how I treat people, right? These are all the ways that when we say, what would Jesus do, right? We, we're living out this life rather than saying, I took a class, or I have information or I have knowledge. That's a very like 21st century Western secular thing is that I learn things and have them and attain them versus um, Jesus where he's not so much concerned about that of how do you live mm-hmm. and uh, what does your lifestyle look like?
0: We're talking with Kevin Cotter, Executive Director of at Amazing Parish. So, Kevin, what does that look like in a, in a parish culture? This, because last time I checked, the, the, the pastor wasn't inviting us to go live in the rectory. How do we, um, as a parish community, engage in a culture of discipleship?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll share what we've been doing. We've, we've been calling it the Unprogram here at the Amazing Parish, and especially during COVID, we've been really challenging parishes uh, to do this. Not only for first off with their teams. So we, we a lot of times form leadership teams, three or four people around a pastor that can really help um, that pastor um, be in a spot where you can get great feedback, make decisions. And then many parishes, if they're larger, they have a, a larger staff. And then, of course, there's councils and programs depending on how big your parish is. But the challenges that we've been making in this unprogrammed that we've been talking about is really what we call the three conversations. So it goes like this. Um, Father, with your staff, we want you to have three conversations and eventually this is with your prisoners as well. The first conversation goes like this. Hey, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to hear what you need prayer, prayer for right now. And after you tell us your intentions, we're just gonna stop and we're gonna pray for those. Right now, like I'll pray for you. No, 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 we're gonna do it right here now in the moment and we're just going to go around to every staff member and pray for them. Mm-hmm. Or if we had a, a small group of 10 prisoners or five prisoners, we're just going to go around and pray for all of you. Second conversation is, um, we'd love to just hear your faith story. Where are you at with God right now? What does that look like in the past? Good, bad, otherwise? Maybe you feel really distant from around now. or Maybe you feel really close. We just want to hear that journey and hear your story. And the third conversation is, where do you fit as a parishioner or as a staff member in the ministry and the mission of our parish? How do you think that, what does that look like for you? And these three simple conversations have done something uh, we've seen dozens and dozens, uh, hundreds now of, of pastors had these with their staff is many of those pastors, honestly, TL what they were, they were nervous to have these conversations with their staff. Um, good men, really good priests go, I don't think, I don't think my staff would want to do that. I don't, think, I don't think my staff would want to tell me their story. I don't know if I want to know where my staff is at right now in their relationship with God. And, and I think, again, going back to this simple principle of circle of influence and circle of concern, if we want our parishes to be missionary outposts, if we want to be great evangelizers and do missionary discipleship, but our own staff we're afraid to talk to about Jesus or to hear their story or to pray with them, well, people are going to sniff out that culture in a heartbeat and go, this thing that you're telling us to do or talking about doesn't match the people who are leaders here. And when that happens, no real movement can happen. And once you get a, a staff that's on fire with these things, then they can go, great, now we can share these with prisoners and have these simple conversations and build up a culture of discipleship that isn't reliant on a program or a thing that we're doing but just people sharing their lives in very simple ways starts to create a culture where people go, it's, it's different here. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my pastor wanted to know what he could pray for me about. And then he just prayed for it. And other Catholics, I think if you said that they go, I, I, my pastor's never prayed for me like that before, mm-hmm. or I've never had a, a parish staff member reach out and say, what's your story and where are you at and how can you help in ministry? That's, I don't know any parish that does that, like, but, and so there's this divide from things that are so simple and almost, um, they're they're so simple. It's like common sense. And at the same time, our lived experience as Catholics is, I've never done that before. And so we've just found just such a rich fruit with with those two, um, like, uh, that tension at hand um, that we've just seen really great growth in this COVID time for our parishes, for their staffs, and and, uh, for their parishioners as well. If
0: you want to pass this information along to your pastor, you can find more information at amazingparish.org. There's some fantastic stuff there. I highly recommend it. Uh, Kevin, I want to talk just a little bit now because the things that you're talking about in terms of this culture and these three conversations, which are so important for our parish staff and pastors to have and the lay leaders to have, these are really the conversations that are important for an ordinary disciple to have as well, for us to engage with the world around us in, in a way that we fulfill the greatest mission of the church, the whole purpose of her existence, which Evangelina Tiandi says, is to evangelize. That's our core identity. And we, I, we evangelize not by going out with our, our set script and saying, well— if i just follow this script you're going to come to jesus we evangelize by being in relationship and and showing people that that faith is important and that that, that god cares about them as a person and we do that by entering into these same kinds of conversations is there something i can pray for you about um, what's your what's your faith story what level of relationship are you in uh, with with a higher power. Do you have any faith or any belief? Uh, and having that be a starting place for discipling relationships outside of the parish walls. You wrote a book recently um, called Becoming a Disciple in a Post-Christian World. Outside of the ministry of the parish, as much as, as any Christian work can be outside the ministry of a parish, what does it look like for the individual to have these conversations as a disciple, specifically when everyone may be be a little bit nervous to have these conversations because of uh, the the division and how starkly divided our culture is these days?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the book was really born out of a lot of my experience with Focus, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. I was a missionary there for 11 years, two years on campus, and I worked nine years at the headquarters there Mostly as a director of curriculum. And over time, you know, when you had this passion for missionary discipleship and sharing this with other people, you know, people come on and they're like, how do I do that? Like really good natured people, people who have been in the church, they're like, okay, the, the church is talking about this thing, but I don't, I don't know how to do that. Like, how do I access that? How do I live that out? And so the book is really born out of that. So it's it's a five-week book, it's a, a daily reflection walks you through five different, um, weeks. And each, each week is a different theme to help people think through their discipleship and following Jesus. And, and so it really starts, um, before when people think about being a disciple, missionary disciple, to think about evangelization, which is so important. But the first step is really just encountering our Lord, right? We can, we can't give what we don't have. So if we haven't encountered Jesus, then we're probably not gonna be super passionate about sharing him with others. We're probably not super interested in finding different techniques or programs or ways or whatever you call it, to share Jesus. If we don't think it's important, right? It's like telling someone, Hey, go out and tell everybody how great this new movie is. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Go tell them still tell them it's the best movie (laughs) you've ever seen, but I, I haven't seen the movie. No, 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 no. no. Like act like your life defended on it. Like that's often what we do in evangelization is we, we want Catholics to evangelize without actually seeing the movie. And so when we start in an encounter, we say, have you actually encountered our Lord? What does an encounter look like? Um, what, how does he encounter people in the gospels? What does Jesus mean? And really helping um, people walk through that encounter, whether you've had a very definitive encounter in the past and you re- need to renew that, because we all need to encounter Jesus every day, or whether we've never had that encounter before, really that's that's the, the first week. Second week's all about, you know, how do we live out this life as a disciple? What does that look like? And a lot of the things I, I shared before about a rabbi and disciples and how did discipleship with Jesus work, right? Getting down to even terms and what Jesus meant and what that looks like. And how do I, how do I live that? How do I follow Jesus? And then from there truly really given a vision for evangelization. most people haven't heard what evangelization looks like from the church. What does that mean from Jesus? How do I understand that and really articulate that? And then there's some best practices in the final two weeks on, you know, how do I evangelize? How do I make other disciples? Things that are farther along the lines, but I really think those, those first few chapters, first few weeks, and just that simplicity helps people have that encounter and learn what it means to follow Jesus and really Jesus' vision for sharing the faith as well.
0: We've been talking with Kevin Cotter, Executive Director at Amazing Parish and author of the book, Becoming a Disciple in a Post-Christian World. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, TL.
0: If you've never heard of Amazing Parish, please go to amazingparish.org and take a look at them. This is the kind of ministry that is going to help our parishes relaunch in a very effective way. So pass this information along to your pastor or staff members. It really is a fantastic program, and I know that they are going to be on the cutting edge of helping us determine and and discern what this post-quarantine church can look like. And if you're not quite sure how to bring up the topic, well, one of the things you could do is pass along this episode to them. All of our episodes are archived, so if you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with others, simply go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, and there you can find a full episode list, including this one, which will be right up toward the top, uh, that you can share on social media, tag your pastor in it, and all <laughs> all the work is taken out of it. It becomes super easy share it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media network you happen to use. And as always, there's more to my conversation with Kevin uh, that is available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. We've got a great support community that helps keep us on the air and that we give lots of extra little goodies to, including weekly extra segments. Uh, You can join their numbers by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching. Uh, You can get your Verbum Library. Try it for 30 days for free. Just go to verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and this is another very familiar story. After he had fed the people, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat "'and precede him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. "'After doing so, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. "'When it was evening, he was there alone. "'Meanwhile, the boat, already a few miles offshore, "'was being tossed about by the waves, for the wind was against it. "'During the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them, walking on the sea.' When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. At once, Jesus spoke to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him in reply, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw how strong the wind was, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught Peter and said to him, "O you of little faith, why did you doubt? After they got into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat did him homage, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew in the 14th chapter. And there is so much that we could talk about here. Um, We're going to pick a specific way, but we could talk about the fact that even Jesus himself had to have time alone in silence To pray. He who shared the very nature of God, the very essence of God, who was one with the Father and the Spirit, even he needed to go and pray and to commune with his Father. How much more then do we need it? We could talk about um, Peter walking on the water. I've always been fascinated by this thing because they think it's a ghost. And so Peter says, Jesus if it's you ask me to do this really dangerous thing that maybe a ghost would ask me to do also in order to kill me but I'm going to ask you because see here's the thing I think that Peter knew that it was Jesus but he he wanted and had this great desire uh, to experience this thing that Jesus was experiencing. He knew it was Jesus, and he just wanted uh, an excuse. That, that, that's, that <laughs> no scholar has told me that. That's just my opinion. But that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk again about the feeling of abandonment. Jesus sends them on ahead. He puts them in a place, and he puts them in a place knowing that it's going to be difficult, Right, So here they are. The wind is against them. They're being battered by the waves. They are uh, fighting this boat. And these are people who are used to boats. Remember, Peter's a professional fisherman. Uh, and yet, they're being battered by the wind, and they're left alone. And Jesus comes to them in the most unexpected way. And, and there, they have great fear. They've been left alone. They're up against the winds. But it's in that place that they come to recognize something about the nature of Christ, something about who he is in relationship to God that they had been unable to grasp from the safety of the shore, from following him around, even from witnessing the miracle of all of the loaves and fish. As they were distributed and fed, the 5,000. Here, in this place, having been isolated and abandoned, having been sent away on ahead, Jesus is having them prepare for this revelation. And so here's the question Do you feel like you've been in a boat, away from Christ and battered? If that's the case, this is the opportunity right now and right here for you to come and learn something profound about who Jesus is. So, ask for him to come to you in the waves and be prepared to go out and meet him. Our reading from Church History comes from a spiritual canticle by St. John of the Cross. The soul united to God and transformed in him draws from within God a divine breath, much like the Most High God himself. And God, abiding in the soul, breathes forth the life of the soul as its exemplar. This I take to be what Paul meant when he said, Because you are children of God, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, this is what takes place in those who have achieved perfection. One should not wonder that the soul is capable of so sublime an activity. For if God so favors her that she is made Godlike by union with the Most Holy Trinity, I ask you then why it should seem so incredible that the soul, at one with the Trinity and in the greatest possible likeness to it, should share the understanding, knowledge, and love which God achieves in himself. How this is possible, no other power or wisdom can express save by explaining how the Son of God obtained this sublime state for us and won for us the power to be the children of God. As he asked of the Father, Father, I desire that where I am Those you have given me may also be with me, that they may see the glory you have given me, that is, that they may share with certainty the very task I perform. And then he said, Not for them alone do I ask, but also for those who will come to believe in me through their teaching, that all may be one, as you, Father, are one in me and I in you." that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect, and the world will know that you sent me, and as you have loved me, so I have loved them. The Father thus gives them the same love He shares with the Son, though not by nature as with the Son, but through unity and transformation of love. One should not think that the Son is asking the Father to make the saints one with Him in essence, and nature as the Son is with the Father, but rather that they be united with Him in love, just as the Father and Son are one in the essential unity of love, accordingly. Souls possess the same goods by participation that the Son possesses by nature. As a result, they are truly divine by participation, equals, and companions of God. Thus Peter said, May grace and peace be perfected in you in the knowledge of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So the soul in this union which God has ordained joins in the work of the Trinity, not yet fully as in the life to come, but nonetheless, even now in a real and perceptible way. That reading comes from a spiritual canticle by St. John of the Cross, and it's in this relationship that he describes that we find our way to be church in this post-quarantine world. That's all the time we have for today's show. Today's show is brought to you by Joseph Roberts and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link and join their numbers. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.